Welcome back to episode number 156 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is a podcast for building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Coloni. In today's episode, we are talking through part two of five common questions about NFPA 652. So as I mentioned last week, this was a presentation that I gave as part of the NFPA 125th anniversary conference series. And this year they're doing this as an annual or a year long conference series rather where each month they have a a different topic related to different NFPA standards. In October, they covered keeping hazardous environments safe on things like hot work, flammable liquids, fuel gas, industrial siting, um, energy storage, and combustible dust. And they gave me the opportunity to give this presentation on the combustible dust side and NFPA 652. So this presentation was completed to highlight 652 compliance requirements, give some background on combustible dust, also start to dive into what are the common questions around 652? What are some of the common challenges that we see through dust safety professionals when people are making requests and trying to use the standard or trying to be in compliance of the standard at their facility as well? So in last week's episode, we covered the first three of the five common questions from this presentation. What is the problem? What is NFPA 652? And does NFPA 652 apply to me? In this session of the podcast, we're going to talk through the last two questions. What does the DHA process look like and who is a qualified person? So as I mentioned last week as well, this was a visual presentation. It had slides, it had examples, it had stories, it had all that good stuff. Um, We're going to try to keep as much of that as I can in this audio version that's on the podcast. But you can always go to the Keeping Hazardous Environments Safe month on the the NFPA 125th 125th Anniversary Conference Series. If you go there, you can get access to the presentation um, if you kind of purchase that day of presentations. You can also join the Dust Safety Academy. I'll be giving the same presentation in November. So if you're listening to this before then, then you can sign up as a free member of Dust Safety Academy and watch it live. If you're listening to this in the future, maybe you're listening to this 2022 or 2023, and then if you go to Dust Safety Academy, we'll likely have some way you can watch the replay there. Currently through a premium membership, members get access to the over 100 webinars and presentations that we have stored in, in the Dust Safety Academy there. So again, the second part of the podcast is on these last two questions. What does a DHA process look like and who is a qualified person? Next week on the podcast, we're going to talk through four challenges with applying NFPA 652 in practice. Challenge number one is what is the first step? Challenge number two is what is the scope of a DHA? Challenge number three is how to hire a DHA consultant. And challenge number four is how to complete a DHA yourself. So stay tuned through this podcast episode and, and skip to the next week's podcast episode um, after you're done and you can get access to those challenges that we'll be talking about in that episode as well. So question number four from this presentation is what does the DHA dust hazard analysis process look like? So to do this, I actually walk through an example, um, a mock-up of a facility that I'm going to explain here. This was based on several different resources. So I mentioned these in the presentation, but I'll sort of list them here. There's a great book from the Center for Chemical Process Safety, CCPS, called Guidelines for Combustible Dust Hazard Analysis, a very good resource for for DHAs. They give a full example of a prescriptive-based DHA and a performance-based DHA as well. And at page 652 itself in Annex B has a DHA example. Um, And the book Methods and Chemical Process Safety, Volume 3 on Dust Explosions, edited by Dr. Paul Amiot and Dr. Faisal Khan, um, also gives a lot of good coverage. They don't have any examples of DHAs, but they talk about a lot of the analysis, the hazard identification, the different requirements that would go into a DHA. Uh, myself and Dr. Jeff Snow is from, from Bike Europe, co-authored a chapter in that textbook. So those are three resources. 
There's also two really good presentations. One is in the Dust Safety Academy um, given by Jeremy Slonwhite, where he gives a sample DHA and a, and a case study of how is it created. There's another really great presentation by Dust Safety Professional member company Hallam ICS um, by their kind of lead for combustible dust, Chris Justo there, given on their website at uh, hallamicscom um, where they, they review a sample dust hazard analysis report as well. These are sort of five good resources for the DHA process and, and give really great examples as well. So this example that I sort of built up today isn't from any one of these resources. I'd say it's bored from all of them and kind of combined into one. If I had to pick one that it takes most from, it's the CCPS book, Guidelines for Combustible Dust Hazard Analysis. Um, some of the specific node analysis that we'll be chatting through in this episode um, come directly from that book or, or modified from the node analysis that are provided in that book. So let's talk about the steps to complete what I'm, I'm saying is a basic DHA, the bare minimum. So if we go back to last week's episode, section 7.2.1 in 652 is overview of DHAs. It says the DHA shall evaluate the fire, deflagration, and explosion hazards and provide recommendations to manage those hazards in accordance with section 4.2, which is the, the compliance section. So this is the bare minimum, evaluate the hazards and provide recommendations. This doesn't necessarily include sort of risk ranking. It doesn't necessarily include an implementation plan, management systems, hazardous area classification, explosion protection design. These are all things you might see in a DHA, and we're going to talk about this next week and some challenges for NFPA 652 and its application, where what is the scope of a dust hazard analysis. This example that we're going to walk through is the basic just the evaluating the hazards and providing the recommendations. And then other things will usually get added on top of that in a, in a DHA done by a, you know, a competent, trustworthy company or, or resource like that. So for this basic DHA, just evaluating the hazards and providing recommendations, there's a, a really a seven-step process. And again, these are taken from some different steps in the resources I mentioned before. Step one is to determine if a combustible dust is involved. So this is hazard identification from 652. Step two is to break the processing operation into a list of nodes. Step three is to add nodes for rooms, buildings, and building enclosures. Step four is to evaluate the fire, flash fire, and explosion scenarios at each node. Step five is to evaluate existing safeguards available at each node to prevent those hazard scenarios. Um, and step six is to document the hazard scenarios, the existing safeguards, and recommendations against prescriptive requirements. That's sort of your basic plain Jane node analysis type dust hazard analysis, only covering the evaluation of the hazards and the recommendations. There are other ways to do this, but this is one of the more commonly employed techniques or approaches is, is this node-based analysis. So in short, to give an example, we're going to walk through a facility that's similar to that that we talked about in episode 78 of the podcast with Dr. Suzanne Smith. Uh, that was case, a case study in a grain dust, of a grain dust explosion in a milling facility. And this was from a paper that she, she and her coworkers uh, at Exponent published called Lessons Learned from a Milling Explosion in the Journal of Loss Prevention in the Processing Industries. So I'm going to explain the process a bit. I'm going to explain the incident that occurred. Um, again, go back to episode 78 of the podcast. Go to dustsafetyscience.com slash 78 or 78. Um, you can get that whole episode there and listen through Suzanne's description of how the investigation was completed but I'm going to kind of briefly explain it here. And then we're going to use this as a, a mock-up to create a facility and to do a, a DHA as well. So this facility was a five-story building 
trying to count the stories in the picture here. So it's a five-story building with a, a basement area. Grain came in from a temper bin that was located outside into a first break mill. This first break mill was pulled off into cyclones that were on the roof, which is termed the, the fifth floor in the diagram I'm looking at. Um, these are all aspirated. The cyclones are aspirated off to a, a dust collection system that's stored between the, the third and the second floor. The material that comes through the cyclone then drops into a sifter. And this sifter does the hard work of dividing the material into its different components and sizes. Then depending on what component and size comes out of the sifter and what area comes out of and how the ducting is configured, all this material then feeds into an array of different milling equipment. So you have hammer mills, attrition mills, roller mills, other brake mills that all get fed up to their own cyclones on the roof, all aspirated to the same dust collector, and then all drop back into the sifter. So the material comes in the temper bin, goes into the first brake mill, and then really gets pulled into the system. And the system consists of cyclones feeding to a sifter, back to other mills. Pull back up the cyclones, feed to the sifter, back into other mills. Depending on what mills are active, how the sifter is configured, how the ducting is configured, you can different, get different products at the end of the day. Eventually, those products are, are fed to an output bin. So the explosion that's outlined in the case study provided by Dr. Smith and her coworkers started as a fire in the attrition mill. That fire was cleaned out after the process was turned off. Um, and then upon startup again, a deflagration happened in the attrition mill. That deflagration propagated through the ducting up to the cyclone on the roof, propagated back into the dust collection system, um, and caused an explosion in the dust collector. The dust collector had venting. It was um, properly vented as per NFPA requirements, but that was designed, as you would normally do, for an explosion that starts in the dust collector. Because this explosion propagated five stories upward, then you know a couple hundred feet across the building, and then back down a couple stories through ducting, it was occurring at a much more rapid rate than you would see from explosion just in one processing vessel. Turbulence is higher, you have pressure piling ahead of that flame, it results in a much more severe explosion in that dust collector than the, what it was designed for. The explosion actually blew off an access hatch in addition to the vent panels and released pressure and fireball back into the building, which then blew at the kind of back corner of this building. So it kind of gives you an idea of what the scenario is that caused this explosion, what the facility is. We're going to use sort of a simplified mock-up of this facility to talk through for our, our DHA um, that we're performing here. As I mentioned, this is probably better done as a visual exercise, so you can check out that NFPA 150, 125th conference series or join the Dust Safety Academy. I'll be giving this full presentation in November. The replays will be available in the Dust Safety Academy as well, but I'll explain the process as best I can. So we're using a simplified version where we have a feed hopper um, located outside. It's connected to a rotary valve. It feeds into a one single room building into a brake mill. That brake mill feeds into an attrition mill. The material in the attrition mill is conveyed to a cyclone on the roof using pneumatic conveying. The cyclone is pulled off to a dust collector. And the material from the cyclone feeds back into the sifter and then back into the attrition mill. So this you know, would be a simplified kind of grinding process where you only have a couple pieces of equipment, the hopper, the first brake mill, the attrition mill, the cyclone, the sifter, and the dust collector. We don't have a whole whack of different attrition mills. We don't have a whole bunch of other equipment. Just this sort of simple setup inside of a building enclosure. We're going to use that as our, our case study to walk through what a DHA would look like at this facility. So as I mentioned at the outset, the seven-step process is, one, determine if combustible dust is involved. Two, break the processing operation to a list of nodes. Three, add nodes for rooms, buildings, and buildings enclosures. 
Four, evaluate fire, flash fire, and explosion scenarios at each node. Five, evaluate the existing safeguards at each node. And six, document the hazard scenarios, safeguards, and the recommendations against the prescriptor requirements. These are seven or six step process for a basic perform or prescriptive based DHA. So what does this look like? So step one, determine if combustible dust is involved. So this facility, the most likely thing to do here would be to do a go, no go screening test and to do that in the dust collection system. This is where you're most likely to have very fine material involved and the driest material. If you did find that there was fugitive dust accumulation inside the building envelope, then that may also be a material that you want to use for your go, no-go screening. In this case, and as described by uh, Dr. Smith in episode 78 of the podcast, there was no fugitive dust in the building, so we're kind of taking that as the conditions. So we go in, um, determine if we have to meet chapter 5 of NFPA 652. We need to do our hazard identification. We can do no-go screening, go, no-go screening. It's probably best in this case to do our testing from the dust collector. Um, Rather than something upstream where you might have larger particle sizes, you might end up with a false negative from your go, no-go screening. So we do that testing. We determine, yes, that material is exposable in the dust collector. So we go into the, the latter steps of our DHA. Break the processing operation into a list of nodes. So step two and step three is add nodes for rooms, buildings, and buildings enclosures. So for this example, we added a node for the feed hopper. It's node one. For the rotary valve, node two. For the first break mill, node three. For the attrition mill, node four. For the cyclone, node five. For the sifter, node 6, and the dust collector, node 7. And we added a node 8 for the building envelope, for the building enclosure, since it's a one single room building. So that gives us the eight nodes needed then for our dust hazard analysis using this approach. If you think back to the example I outlined in the full case study, there's at least half a dozen mills, there's different bins, there's lots of ducting, there's seven cyclones on the roof. So you tell there's going to be a lot more nodes in that analysis because of the building so congested and there's so much equipment in there, we're sort of doing a simplified version with eight nodes here. So in steps five and four and five rather are to evaluate the fire, flash fire, and explosion scenarios at each node and evaluate the existing safeguards at each node. And then we want to make recommendations against the prescriptor requirements outlined in 652 and any other standards, engineering guidelines, and regulations that apply to these systems. So to do that, this is often done sort of in a in a table or in some sort of format where it's common, each each node looks the same. You can quickly scan through and say, okay, what's the status of this node? What hazard scenarios are there? What are the consequences and what are the safeguards against those hazard scenarios? And what are any recommendations? So you very often see this in a table. So if we take node one, for example, the feed hopper, and this is this is from the chemical Center for Chemical Process Safety book. They actually have these tables for each of these different elements on a similar example. These are not all-inclusive. They don't include all the hazard scenarios. They're not meant to be used as a insert into a dust hazard analysis. You really need a competent person to evaluate these elements. I'm just using them for illustrative purposes. So if we look at node one for the feed hopper, our hazard scenarios, scenario A, maybe static electricity accumulation ignites a dust cloud in the hopper, causing a flash fire or explosion. And scenario B might be an explosion in the first brake mill propagates back into the feed hopper. These are two scenarios that could cause explosions in that first node, which is the feed hopper. The consequences, the vessel explosion could potentially cause injuries or fatalities outside of the facility nearby the, the, the feed hopper. Safeguards may include bonding and grounding the unit as per NFPA 654. 
and I'll leave out the section number here because I went and verified myself that these are the right section numbers. Very often with the safeguards, you'll see a reference back to specifically where that safeguard comes from. In this case, an additional safeguard is the rotary valve between the feed hopper and the first brake mill serves to um, isolate an explosion uh, upstream and downstream in that device as per page 654. And again, I'll leave the section number out. So I went back and verified that the section number that's given here is correct. So these are scenarios, our consequences, our safeguards. Then in this facility, some recommendations might be to provide explosion protection on this feed hopper. Since the hopper is located outside, venting as per NFPA 68, deflagration venting can be used. Um, and ensure the design of the rotary valve complies with the requirements of NFPA 69. So through you know investigation inspection, you may find that there's no protection on that feed hopper. So that'd be a recommendation. Um, and you need to make sure the rotary valve is staying in compliance with the requirements of NFPA 69. When an explosion happens upstream or downstream, it's going to be able to prevent it. A lot of times with some materials, you'll see these rotary valves either getting chewed up, they may have rubber tips, they may have large gaps that you know, have formed, or maybe it just hasn't been fitted correctly. Those are different areas where you may actually have an explosion, be able to propagate through one side of the rotary valve to the other. So you need to make sure that's designed for compliance. So I want to give kind of two additional points about this node. So one is, is isolation. And the second is how to incorporate your testing program with your dust hazard analysis. So let's talk about this first point, isolation. So in this case, we included the hazard scenario of an explosion in the first brake mill propagating back from the from the first brake mill into the feed hopper as a hazard scenario. This is one way to include the considerations for isolation into your dust hazard analysis. The other way is to actually include the ducting or any connection between vessels as their own nodes themselves and then give them their own analysis, their own table looking at the hazard scenarios that can occur in that ducting, consequences, safeguards, and recommendations. Either way can be used, but you need to see one of them. Otherwise, you'll miss the isolation as being a requirement. Snares where you may want to have the ducting be its own node, if you have a very large ducting, if you're conveying, if you know that you're conveying um, hot material or potential ignition sources, if the ducting is located in a populated area where workers are frequently found, basically anywhere where you want to have a more critical look at the ducting, it makes sense to include that ducting as its own node and do the whole full evaluation of it. Hazard scenarios, consequences, safeguards, and recommendations in that ducting. Alternatively, if those aren't true and it doesn't need as, as in-depth of a look, you can include it in the way we did here, where it's a scenario from one piece of equipment to a next. So explosion in the first brake mill propagates back into the feed hopper. Similarly, on the first brake mill, then we'd have to include the scenario where an explosion in the feed hopper propagates into the first brake mill as well to make sure both of those are have existing safeguards in place to meet the requirements of the NFPA standards. So it gives you sort of an idea of what the analysis would look like for node one, the speed hopper. Let's talk about nodes three and four. So these are our first brake mill and our attrition mill. And I forgot to talk about incorporating your testing program with your DHA. We can actually just slide this right down into this example as well. So I'll do it at the end here. So in the first brake mill, or in the mills in general, you may see the table have elements um, you know, as follows. So hazard scenarios, scenario one, hot material or surfaces in the mill ignite a fire in the system. Scenario B, hot material or surfaces in the mill ignite an explosion inside the system. Scenario C, explosion in the attrition mill propagates back into the first brake mill. These are some of the kind of hazard scenarios you might see for these two different nodes. Consequences, um, smoldering material in the vessel will be a potential ignition source, uh, maybe a potential source of equipment damage in the first place. 
um, but also could be ignition source and you know could lead to a, an explosion in the the vessel and potential for injury or fatality facility damage and product loss safeguards could include temperature probes inside the mill to indicate increased temperature levels or smoldering make sure you have an emergency action plan or response plan in place uh, that's known to employees that they're trained on when and how to deal with smoldering in one of the, the mills. And then I'll kind of slide in here, this incorporating testing program to your hazard analysis. I really want two takeaway points here. One is this incorporating your testing program into this node analysis. And then second is the uh, fire hazards. So we'll talk about this next week, this, this combining your testing program with your DHA and really coupling the two can be really effective. So in this case, you may look at the first break mill and attrition mill and say, well, you know, the, the attrition mill has the material feeding back from the cyclone, back from the sifter. It's getting smaller. It's going through that attrition mill where the first break mill only has one pass. Material is coming in from the feed hopper and it's going out into the attrition mill. You may look at that and go, oh, well, maybe we want to test that material in the first break mill to see if it is an explosion hazard at all. You may send that off to the lab and do go, no go testing and find out that, hey, that's not an explosion hazard at that stage of the process, then you may not need you know, explosion prevention and protection techniques and approaches on that first break mill. Uh, you may send that same material off from the attrition mill and find out that, yeah, it is an explosion hazard because it has the fines that are being fed back in from the sifter, from the, the cyclone. And because that material is in there longer, there's stronger tendency for ignition sources in the attrition mill. There's all kinds of reasons why you may evaluate, say, yes, there is a hazard in the attrition mill. But if you combine your testing program with your DHA at the same time and couple them, you may be able to opt out of protection at different areas of your facility. So that's point number one. Point number two is this requirement in 652 that a DHA shall evaluate the fire, deflagration, and explosion hazards and provide recommendations to manage those hazards in accordance with section 4.2. So again, it's fire, deflagration, which is a fireball passing through dispersed medium a flash fire or an unenclosed fireball or an explosion inside the enclosure, you need to look at all three of these scenarios. So we looked at these nodes three and four. We added scenarios for hot material or surfaces in the mill igniting a fire and then had recommendations, had safeguards there about things like maybe having a temperature probe or having some sort of emergency action plan being developed and responded to in a systematic way when smoldering happens. And we'll, we'll touch back on that in a second. So the node eight and the last node that we'll talk about in this sort of case study is the enclosure in the room itself. In this case, it was evaluated that there was little fugitive dust inside the facility. There was not an explosion hazard. So it might be tempting to leave this note out of the analysis. And I heard Jason Reason give an example like this in a, in a presentation once, and it may have been in the Dust Safety Academy, where he said that we really should include nodes that are being done correctly as well in the DHA so they get credit for it, one, and so that people sort of know how to keep it up. So in this case, we've identified that there are safeguards about housekeeping, about dust collection, about containment inside equipment, that they're being met. The recommendation might just be periodic inspections to ensure that the safeguards A to C above are maintained and will avoid any future buildup of combustible dust in the area. So you're including that node in the assessment, even though it's not deficient, but the recommendation might just be to have periodic inspections to make sure deficiencies don't appear, don't occur over time. And this is really important when you start to look at degradation of equipment. Maybe you have a, rot um, a rotary valve that is working really well when you first install it. The recommendation there might be periodic inspections to make sure that the gaps aren't getting too wide, make sure the fins are still intact, make sure the pressure rating is still sufficient to, to 
maintain explosion if and when does one does occur. So that's the, the last point I want to make on that sort of node analysis is give credit for nodes that are done right and also make recommendations on maintaining those nodes over time. So if someone reads the report five years down the road, they don't just completely ignore fugitive dust inside the enclosure as an issue. They know, okay, yeah, we were doing this right. And look, there's some dust build up around the attrition mill. There's some dust sitting on top of the first brake mill and sifter. It looks like we need to come back and reevaluate this node in the future now. So we looked at three, four nodes, really, the feed hopper, the first brake mill and the attrition mill, and the enclosure and room. That's all we're going to cover in this podcast episode for this, this uh, pretty long answer to the short question, what does a DHA process look like? So we sort of talked through hazard scenarios, consequences, safeguards, and recommendations with a couple of key pull-out points here. So one is how to include isolation in your DHA. You need to either include the ducting or the connection as a node itself or include it as a hazard scenario where node A ignites a fire explosion in node B. We talked about coupling your testing program with your DHA, which can be a really powerful thing for explosion protection design, powerful thing for just designing a, you know, a, a well-running facility in terms of your combustible dust safety program. Uh, we talked about making sure that fires and flash fire hazards are evaluated as hazard scenarios in the DHA. We talked about give a credit for nodes that are have no deficiencies and including recommendations to make sure those, those deficiencies don't accumulate over time. Those degradation factors don't come into play down the road. So sort of putting it all together, then we had this six-step process um, at our facility, this fictitious one. We determined that the combustible dust was involved by doing a go-no-go screening in the dust collector. Um, the next step is probably to do Pmax and KST maybe even MEC testing that dust collectors. We're going to need those design parameters elsewhere in the facility. We did go no-go screening in the first brake mill to say, hey, do we have an explosion hazard here? Turned out that that was an explosive material in the first brake mill. Um, so there may not be a requirement to have explosion protection in that brake mill. We did go no-go screening in the attrition mill. Turns out there is a potentially deflagrable or explosible dust, so we do need protection there. So you may kind of look at this and go, okay, well, we have the attrition mill, the sifter, the cyclone, you sort of have a decision to make. Do we want to use the Pmax and KST parameters that we determined in the dust collector to design our explosion protection equipment in these pieces of equipment as well? Or do we want to do individual testing in these pieces of equipment? In this case, you're probably going to use the dust collector, Pmax, KST, and other explosion parameters because that same material is feeding back in through the sifter, feeding back into the attrition mill and back in the cyclone. But in some cases, you may get a less conservative explosion protection requirement if you do individual testing these pieces of equipment. Uh, looking at our attrition mill, we evaluated the fire hazard, and we also evaluated the explosion propagating from the attrition mill to the dust collector. In this case, those two things would have been key to prevent this explosion at this facility. Having a emergency action and response plan in place for smoldering in the attrition mill, for double-checking that it's completely cleared out before it starts back up, it's not clear exactly what the ignition source was from this case, but having a effective emergency response plan, cleanup program, and startup process may have prevented this explosion from happening. Then also having isolation between the dust collector and the other piece of equipment may have prevented the explosion from propagating to the dust collector as well, which would be identified if you include the connection points as their own node or as a hazard scenario in the DHA analysis. So sort of putting this all together then, this needs to be documented into a dust hazard analysis report. 
There's really six basic pieces of a DHA report, executive summary, methodology and scope, material characterization, process characterization, hazard evaluation analysis, and recommendations. The hazard evaluation analysis process and the recommendations can either be kept in these tables that we've developed as we've done our known analysis, or they can be taken out and, and added as a narrative, sort of as sections of the report. Um, you'll see companies do, do it either way. If they do the narrative approach, then they'll usually include the tables as a appendix to the report as well. That's sort of your basic report outline, and then you'll see additional materials depending on scope. Again, we're talking about this next week, but you might see risk ranking, implementation plan, management systems, administrative controls, dutchful area classification, housekeeping plans, explosion protection design documents, and lots of other things might also be included in the scope of that dust hazard analysis um, as agreed on by the owner and operator and the provider of the DHA at the start of the process. So again, that's a long answer to a simple question of what does a DHA look like at the end of the day? Um, really walking through what you know a very basic DHA might look like at what is a pretty simple facility. The last question we'll tackle in these five questions is who is a qualified person? This one's an interesting question. And if you look at 652, it has a, a little bit of information. So chapter three in 652 defines a qualified person as a person who, by possession of a recognized degree, certificate, professional standing, or skill, and who, by knowledge, training, and experience, has demonstrated the ability to deal with problems related to the subject matter, the work, or the project. So that's a little bit of an obtuse sort of definition, um, but it gives us something. There is more information provided in the appendix. For example, Appendix A.7.2.2, that section says a qualified person who is leading or performing a DHA should be familiar with conducting a DHA. The qualified person should also be familiar with the hazards of combustible dust. And typically a team would be responsible for performing a DHA, although somebody has to actually lead it at the end of the day and that person needs to be qualified. So out of these, these two statements, I kind of take them backwards and take out a couple of pieces of them. So the first is the qualified person should be familiar with the hazards of combustible dust. That makes sense as a starting point for someone who needs to do a DHA. They should also be familiar with conducting a DHA. So they should be familiar with you know, the fundamentals of combustible dust, and they should also be familiar with the techniques of performing a DHA. Okay, that makes sense. And then they should also be familiar and have an ability to deal with the problems related to the subject matter, the work, or the project. So for me, this really stands out to mean you know, be familiar with the industry, the equipment involved, and the, the type of processing facility that they're working at. So I've really taken these as part of dust safety professionals, combine them into what we're calling the, the three core components of a qualified person. So again, this is my take or our take at dust safety science and through dust safety professionals. This is not the NFPA requirements. And if you ask other people, you may get other components of a qualified person. The ones we use are these, these three areas. So Broad knowledge and understanding of combustible dust hazards. That's the first thing that's needed, the first core component. The second core component is the specific understanding of the industry, processes, and systems under review. And the third component is demonstrable experience performing DHAs and or leading DHA teams. So when you kind of think about these three core components, they, they sort of make sense intuitively. Understand combustible dust, understand the industry and materials that are being used, and experience doing a DHA. Actually, how do you perform it? What's the structure of DHA? How do you make recommendations? How do you make sure you include everything? Those are the sort of three criteria, the three core components of a qualified person. 
you kind of think of a couple examples here. So you have somebody that has worked in the industry for a long time in that certain facility, say a grain miller, say he takes a course on how to you know, do a DHA, the, the structure, the node analysis I just covered in this podcast. Maybe he listened to this podcast and now he knows the structure. But if he doesn't have a, you know, a broad knowledge of combustible dust hazards, you probably don't want them doing the DHA if they're missing that side of the triangle because uh, they're likely to miss hazards and they're likely to make incorrect or incomplete recommendations. Similarly, if you have somebody that you know, is really knowledgeable of combustible dust, has, been, has, has 10 years experience working as a consultant in industries handling combustible dust, does a lot of DHAs for grain facilities, we might not want to throw them right into a 3D metal printer handling nano-titanium dust if they've never worked with metals before. So they should have some specific understanding of the industry and the processes and the systems that are under review in order to be a qualified person. And similarly, if they're really knowledgeable about the industry, maybe they have a lot of combustible dust knowledge, but they don't know what the, the steps are. They've never read 652 and they have no understanding about you know the steps to complete a DHA. Well, you probably don't want them doing the DHA either. So if you're missing any of these three core components, uh, again, that that we're using, then you're not going to get an effective DHA at the end of the day where all the hazards are recognized and quality recommendations are made. So again, the three core modes we use are broad knowledge and understanding of combustible dust hazards, specific understanding of the industry processes and system under review, and demonstrable experience in performing DHAs and or leading DHA teams. And we're going to come back to these next week when we talk about these challenges with the application of NFPA 652 and specifically how do you hire a DHA consultant how do you complete a DHA yourself? We'll talk through these in next week's episode. So again, this is a podcast episode looking at five common questions about NFPA 652. This is part two where we covered the last two questions. In part one, which we did last week, we covered what is the problem that NFPA 652 solves? What is the structure of 652 and does it apply to me? This week, we talked about what does the DHA process look like, gave a pretty in-depth example, um, as, as in-depth as you can give in audio on a podcast, um, and talked about who is a qualified person. This presentation was part of the NFPA 125th um, anniversary conference series, and in October, they covered keeping hazardous environments safe and including combustible dust, and, and I was able, fortunate enough to give a presentation on this topic there. But they want to talk about the structure and the requirement and the compliance of NFPA 652, but also what questions and challenges do people have in actually ap- applying at the end of the day, which was the inspiration for the material we covered. So we talked about what does a DHA process look like today, and we came up with these seven steps for a basic DHA, determine if combustible dust is involved, that's step one. Step two, break the processing operation to a list of nodes. Step three is to add nodes for rooms, buildings, and buildings enclosures. Step four is to evaluate the fire, flash fire, and explosion scenarios at each node. Step five is to evaluate the existing safeguards available at each node. And step six is to document the hazard scenarios, existing safeguards, and recommendations against these prescriptive requirements. We gave an example of a grain milling explosion and sort of a simplified grain milling process. We talked about some some things that came up in the node analysis, so how to handle connections between equipment, incorporating your testing plan and coupling it into your DHA, making sure you include fire and flash fire hazard scenarios, and how to treat hazards that are being managed correctly so that they're still acknowledged and brought forth in the dust hazard analysis and in the reporting so that when folks look at it later, they don't you know, miss those hazards as they degrade and develop over time. And in this case, the, the case study that we looked at, isolation between the dust collection system and the, the other parts of the, the system and emergency response plan may have prevented the explosion that um, caused pretty, pretty large destruction to the facility. 
The second question we tackled was who is a qualified person? We talked about the NFPA definitions. Sort of gave her our own take for that we're using for dust safety professionals. So someone who has broad knowledge and understanding of combustible dust hazards, has specific understanding of the industry processes and systems being reviewed, and has demonstrable experiences in performing demonstrable experience in performing DHAs and or leading DHA teams. Next week, we'll talk about how someone might come about to actually prove they have those competencies or um, go about getting them at the end of the day. So if you're missing one of these three, then you're not able to really evaluate the fire, deflagration, or explosion hazards and provide effective recommendations to manage them. You're not going to have an effective DHA at the end of the day. So that's it for this week. Next, we're going to come back with these four common challenges in the application map, page 652. Um, the links for everything that we talked about in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 156. If you want to see the presentation, you can uh, find it in the nfpa.org website. We're also doing this um, as a training separately in the Dust Safety Academy, I think sometime in November of this year, which is 2021. Uh, if you're listening to this in the future, you can go to the Dust Safety Academy and you'll find some way to find the replay there, um, I'm sure. Either it's part of the standard membership or the premium membership. If you need any support with your combustible dust hazards, if you need a qualified person, if you need a DHA completed at your facility or need testing, just go to dustsafetyprofessionals.com. Um, enter a help desk ticket there, just enter a request there, um, and we'll work with you to find a facility that can um, help you do a DHA or get testing, design, and anything else that is required for your dust safety program moving forward. So that's it for this episode. As always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Hope you have a safe and productive week ahead, and I appreciate everything you're doing in industries handling combustible dust, making them safer with the work you do every day. 